appreciate everyone coming today. I know this is a busy time of year, and I'm especially excited to see all the students here. This is wonderful. And um, it's an honor for me to be asked to present this seminar. Thank you for the invitation. Um, this talk, the data were actually collected for another large grant where we were looking at accuracy of children's dietary recalls. So we were in the schools and we had an opportunity to collect some other data and do some secondary analysis. So that's what this is from and we actually got another R21 funded for this. So if I can work things right and I'm gonna try to stay put so I don't trip over things and mess everything up. Angela did such a nice job setting this all up. The ABCs of school meals, daily attendance, body mass index, and observed consumption. Now it's well known that childhood obesity has increased dramatically the past several decades in the United States as well as around the world. And of course this is a concern because of the health reasons related to it. The national, the school breakfast program and national school lunch program are two food assistance programs that are administered by the United States Department of Agriculture. Millions of children participate in these programs each school day. For example, during fiscal year 2008, an average of almost 11 million children participated in the school breakfast program each school day, and almost 31 million in the national school lunch program each school day. Now there's growing concern about whether participation in these school meal programs contributes to childhood obesity. So the USDA in March of 2004 convened an expert panel to identify whether participation in the food assistance programs contributes to obesity. After reviewing the literature and the studies that have been done on the topic, the panel concluded that the sparse research that has been published provides no consistent evidence of association between participation in either school breakfast program or national school lunch program and overweight or obesity. But there have been several methodological limitations of the previous research. For example, information about participation in the school breakfast program and the national school lunch program has relied on parents' reports of the child's participation or the child's reports. For example, how many times in the past week did you participate or yes, no, does your child participate? And then information about children's intake at school meals has relied on parental reports of the child's intake, what they've eaten at school, or the child's reports. And of course we know that there are issues relying on memory. It is not always accurate. So parents have difficulty accurately reporting their child's participation in school meals and their intake at school meals, and children have difficulty with that as well. And also, when we want to investigate a possible relationship between childhood obesity and participation in school meals, it may be important to consider the location of school breakfast, whether it's in the classroom or the cafeteria. Many school districts are offering breakfast in the classroom now in an effort to increase participation in school breakfast. So the objective of the analysis that I'm presenting today was to address three research questions using data that we collected during three consecutive school years for a dietary reporting validation study. The study was always conducted with fourth grade children, so essentially we had three cohorts of fourth grade children um, for three years. We had the three research questions. The first one, what is the relationship between children's BMI and their daily participation? in school meals during their fourth grade school year. Does that differ for breakfast versus lunch, by sex, by breakfast location, 
and by school year. So the first re research question deal with BMI and participation. The second research question, we looked at a subset of fourth grade children who had been observed eating school meals to determine the relationship between their BMI and their observed intake at the school meals. Does it differ for breakfast and lunch separately versus combined by sex, by breakfast location, and by school year? And then the third research question, we essentially repeated the first re research question, we included observed energy intake in the first research question. So we had participation and observed energy intake in children's BMI. So our methods, of course, we had written parental consent and child assent. The data were collected during three school years in eight to 17 elementary schools. For those three school years, um, six, six, and seven of the schools had breakfast in the classroom. The other schools had breakfast in the cafeteria. This was how the schools had it set up. We did not change how they were already doing their school meals. And the district, these data were collected in the Richland One School District here in the Columbia area. And they had implemented offer versus serve in all of the schools. And that means that children could refuse certain meal items at breakfast and at lunch. And about, we had an agreed participation rate of about 74%. So we had 1,780 children who agreed to participate in the study. This is across the three school years, fourth grade children. Questions or comments so far? Am I talking too fast? Okay. Participation in school meals, we obtained the information from electronic administrative records provided by the school district. So these were available for the 180 days of the fourth grade school year. They were available for 1,571 of the 1,780 fourth grade children in the study. Again, this is their daily participation in school breakfast and school lunch. For our analyses, we defined breakfast participation as the number of days on which the child participated in school breakfast during their fourth grade school year. Lunch participation, the number of days that they participated in school lunch during fourth grade. For combined participation, the child had to participate in both breakfast and lunch on that day. For weight and height measurements, research staff followed a written protocol and standardized procedures. They measured children's weight and height in duplicate in the spring of their fourth grade school year. These weights and heights were always done in the morning after school breakfast, before lunch. We used digital scales and portable stadiometers. And each day we assessed intermeasure reliability on pairs of research staff on approximately a random 10% sample of the children each day and our interclass correlation reliability was very good for both weight and height for each of the three school years. We used each child's BMI percentile. We determined it based on the BMI charts from the Centers for Disease Control, which are based on the child's age and sex. And then we assigned them to a BMI category as underweight, less than the fifth percentile, healthy weight between the fifth and the 85th percentile, Overweight between the 85th and 95th, obese between the 95th and 99th, or severely obese greater than the 99th percentile. For observed intake at school meals, we had a subset of 465 children 
who were each observed eating school breakfast and school lunch on the same day for an individual child. We did have a small number of children who we actually had observed intake on more than one day, breakfast and lunch, um, on two days for 73 children, three days for 10 children, and four days for one child. But the majority of this subset we had for only one day, breakfast and lunch, observed intake. Researchers observed one to three children simultaneously during their regular meal periods, and then the children sat as they would according to their school's typical arrangement. Again, we did not change anything how they were doing it, how they were eating in the school meals. The one exception there, we asked the children to wear name tags who were in the study, and, that's, and they always wore name tags when observers were there, and that's how we knew who was in the study. That was the only thing that was done differently. We used paper forms to record the items and amounts eaten in servings of the standardized school meal portions. And we assessed inter-observer reliability each week and had acceptable results for IOR. We used qualitative labels to record the observed information and then converted that to numeric values. So if we observed that a little bit was eaten, it was assigned a fourth of the serving, um, most of the serving was eaten assigned three-fourths of a serving, and then we multiplied those quantified servings by the per-serving energy values of the standardized school meal portions. We obtained the energy values primarily from the nutrition data system for research. Sometimes we got the information from the school district's nutrition program. And then for each observed meal, we summed the values for energy intake across the items eaten. And if a child had multiple days of observation, then we averaged it for that child for their, energy, their average observed energy intake for breakfast and then for lunch. So for research question one, our sample was all 1,571 children. We conducted analysis of covariance with BMI as the dependent variable and our independent variables were breakfast participation, lunch participation, combined participation, and then sex, breakfast location, and school year. For research question two, we had the subset of 465 children who were observed eating school meals. We did analysis of covariance with BMI as a dependent variable. Our independent variables were their average observed energy intake for breakfast, for lunch, sex, breakfast location, and school year. And then research question three, we repeated the analysis of covariance and we included the breakfast, lunch, and combined participation as independent variables. With me so far? For all three research questions, we used BMI instead of BMI percentile because of distributional problems. However, all the children were in the fourth grade, so they were all a similar age, and each model included sex. For each of the three research questions, we repeated the analyses for BMI category using logistic regression models. Instead of using the five BMI categories, we used four, and that was because we only had 20 children who were in the lowest BMI category, the, the underweight, so we included that with the healthy weight. This slide shows the number and percent of fourth grade children by their BMI category and school year for the total sample of children. I'd like to point out, as you can see, that overweight, obesity, and severe obesity were very prevalent in this sample. 
We, only, we had approximately half of the sample that was underweight or healthy weight for each of the three school years. And the other half was either overweight, obese, or severely obese. Not that big of a surprise, but it's a concerning, it's of concern, certainly. This is the same table, but for the subset of 465 children who had been observed eating the school meals. And note that the percentages for the subset on this slide are very similar to what we had on the previous slide. Again, approximately half of the sample was underweight or healthy weight, and the other half was either overweight, obese, or severely obese. This slide shows the mean and standard deviation number of days of participation by BMI category for the total sample of children. And if you'll notice that breakfast participation was less than lunch participation for each of the categories between, between the row for breakfast and the row for lunch. Breakfast participation less than lunch participation. But breakfast participation was similar to the combined participation. And the other thing to point out is that the participation was similar across all the BMI categories. If you go just for breakfast, 104 for underweight, healthy weight, 104 for overweight, 106 days for obese, 107 days for severely obese. Very similar for lunch, very similar for combined participation as well. And then this slide shows the same information, but for the subset of 465 observed children. And we basically, here we see that breakfast participation, lunch participation, and combined participation are more similar on this slide than they were on the previous slide. And that makes sense, because again, this was a subset of children who had been observed eating the school meals. So in order to be observed, they had to be eating the meals. But I will point out, again, the participation across the four BMI categories was very similar for breakfast, for lunch, and for combined breakfast and lunch. So now we'll go into our results for research question one. And just as a reminder, what was research question one? What is the relationship between children's BMI and daily participation in school meals during their fourth grade school year? When we analyzed BMI, sex was significant. Average BMI was smaller for boys than for girls. When we analyzed BMI category, again, sex was significant. And the table shows the percentage of boys by BMI category. You'll see that as we get into the heavier BMI categories, there's a smaller percentage of boys than girls. Breakfast location. For analysis of BMI, breakfast location was significant. Average BMI was larger for children who had breakfast in the classroom than in the cafeteria. Same thing for analysis of BMI category. Breakfast location was significant. And as we go from the um, healthy weight to the severely obese BMI categories, we have a larger percentage of children who had eaten breakfast in the classroom. Breakfast participation, lunch participation, and combined participation were not significant in the analysis of BMI or BMI category. That was not surprising based on the tables that I showed you earlier. 
a school year also was not significant in analysis for BMI or BMI category for research question one. Okay, moving on to research question two, which was for the subset of 465 children who had been observed eating school meals during their fourth grade school year. What's the relationship between their BMI and their observed energy intake at the school meals? When we analyzed BMI, average observed energy intake for breakfast was not significant. The p-value just missed it. Um, when we analyzed for BMI category, average observed energy intake for breakfast was significant. And in the table, we show the calories, average observed energy intake for breakfast by BMI category. And you see that as we go from the healthy weight BMI category, 248 calories on average observed eaten at breakfast to the severely obese category, 281 calories. So more calories were eaten as we moved to the heavier BMI categories. When we look at average observed energy intake for lunch, for analysis of BMI, it was significant and was also significant for BMI category. And here basically we're seeing the same thing at lunch that we saw at breakfast. As we go to the heavier BMI categories, more calories were observed eaten. 470 for healthy weight, 588 calories on average observed energy intake at lunch for the severely obese. For research question two, when we analyzed BMI, breakfast location was significant. Average BMI was larger for children with breakfast in the classroom than in the cafeteria. However, when we analyzed BMI category, it just missed being significant, breakfast location. The p-value is 0.056. Sex and school year were not significant for analysis of BMI or BMI category for research question two. And then moving on to research question three, which is when we had the subset of fourth grade children observed eating school meals, what is the effect on research question one when we included observed energy intake in the analyses? And then research question one was the relationship between daily participation in school meals and BMI. We're including observed energy intake in the model. For analysis of BMI, average observed energy intake for breakfast was significant. And same thing for BMI category. Average observed energy intake for breakfast was significant. These are the same values for kilocalories that we had in the earlier table. That's because it's the same subset, 465 children who had been observed eating the school meals. And then for lunch, analysis of BMI, average observed energy intake for lunch was significant. And the same thing for BMI category, it was significant. And these cal kilocalories look familiar as well. Again, it's the same sample of 465 children here. For, bless you, for analysis of BMI, breakfast location was significant. Average BMI was larger for children with breakfast in the classroom than in the cafeteria. For analysis of BMI category, the same thing. It was significant. A larger percent we have, as we go from healthy weight children, 54% had breakfast in the classroom. We moved to overweight in the obese categories, 63% had breakfast in the classroom. The severely obese, 74% had breakfast in the classroom. All the others had breakfast in the cafeteria. For research question three, for analysis of BMI and BMI category, 
Breakfast participation, lunch participation, and combined participation were not significant. Sex was not significant, and school year was not significant. So our results showed that daily participation in school breakfast, school lunch, and both school meals combined was not significantly associated with BMI or with BMI category. These results agree with those of the expert panel convened by USDA in 2004. However, the results concerning participation in school breakfast in children's BMI differ with results from the third school nutrition dietary assessment study, which found a negative relationship between children's BMI and their participation in school breakfast. However, for that study, children reported their usual weekly intake excuse me, usual weekly participation in school breakfast. And for the current analysis, we had daily participation in school breakfast from the electronic administrative records from the school district. For all three research questions, for both BMI and BMI category, breakfast location was significant, with one exception for BMI category for research question two. Now, it's possible that breakfast location affects BMI and BMI category through partial mediation of observed energy intake and some other mechanisms not captured by our models. So we did a post-hoc two-sample teeth test on observed energy intake for breakfast by breakfast location. And we found that more energy was observed eaten for breakfast in the classroom, 276 calories on average, than for breakfast in the cafeteria, 250 calories. When we ran a post-hoc two-sample t-test on observed energy intake at lunch by breakfast location, there was no significant difference. They were eating similar amounts at lunch, regardless of where they had eaten breakfast, cafeteria or classroom. The significant effect of sex on BMI and BMI category that we found in research question one was absent in the other two research questions, where we included either observed energy intake or both observed energy intake and daily participation in the models. Now, it's possible that sex affects BMI and BMI category through partial mediation of observed energy intake for both school breakfast and school lunch, as well as some other mechanisms not captured by our models. We did a post-hoc two-sample t-test on observed energy intake for breakfast by sex. We found that boys ate more than girls, not that much of a surprise, at breakfast, we found the same thing at lunch. Boys, on average, ate more kilocalories than girls. But keep in mind, I said it's not that much of a surprise that we found boys eating more kilocalories than girls. But remember, this is basically a captive audience. They're in a cafeteria. This is the food that's provided. We are observing them eating the school meals, what has been provided. Although it was offer versus serve, so they could refuse certain items or pick some different items. Observed energy intake at breakfast and at lunch were positively associated with BMI and BMI category for research question two and three with one exception, BMI for observed energy intake at breakfast for research question two. Now there are limitations to our analyses, the main one being our primary dietary reporting validation study was not designed to answer these three research questions. We did not have any measures of physical activity, I'm sorry, guys, <laughs> um, or of observed 24-hour intake. We only had it for school breakfast and school lunch. 
we, we weighed and measured children only at one time point per child. We did not have beginning of the school year and ending of the school year. We had in the spring. Um, our sample um, only included fourth grade children from one school district and they were primarily African American. And remember that our estimates that we use the standardized school meal portions um, to estimate the caloric content of those servings and then the amounts observed eaten. However, we use the same process for each child, for each observed school meal, irrespective of the child's BMI or BMI category. But strengths of our analyses, participation in school meals was determined using electronic administrative records provided by the school district and for daily participation. And this was instead of using summary measures that either parents or children had provided of school meal participation. And another strength, we had direct observation of energy intake at school meals instead of relying on parents to report what the child has eaten at school, which is challenging because parents are not with the child at school. Um, and we did not have to rely on the children reporting what they had eaten. And we had rigorous quality control measures for the school meal observations through the inter-observer reliability and for the weight and height measurements with the inter-measure reliability. So in conclusion, these secondary analyses were a cost-efficient step to add new knowledge to inform the design of future controlled trials or cohort studies aimed at understanding pathways to obesity among children who participate in school meals. Longitudinal studies with weight and height measurements at the beginning and the end of the school year during each grade in elementary school, as well as children's daily participation during each grade in elementary school, could help resolve some of these concerns about a possible relationship between participation in school meals and childhood obesity. And if the budget allows, it would be wonderful to include some school meal observations during each of those grades in elementary school and other desirable data such as physical activity. Yes, right? <laughs> and I'd like to acknowledge this, was, this research was supported by an R01 and an R21 funded by National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. And co-authors who I am very grateful to, um, James Harden, Caroline Gwynn is with us today and Alyssa McElprang, um, and then Julie Royer and Christina Devlin. And I'd also like to thank the elementary schools and the Student Nutrition Service of Richland One School District. And we appreciate the contribution to this work of Amy Joy, who was project director for the R01 until she suffered a severe brain injury due to medical tragedy. There has been a Amy Joy Memorial Research Award established through the American Dietetic Association Foundation in Amy's memory, and applications are due each December 1st to the ADA Foundation uh, for research grants. And I'm happy to answer any questions.
what they want, what they don't want mm -hmm. to put in the computer, or mm -hmm. what their mm -hmm. problem, their individual aspects are, I would say that. But in terms of examining whether um, differing within number of children who accepted a number of items, um, is that the thing you talked about, mm -hmm. and how you could have, you know, for those That's an excellent question, and that is something that we do want to look at, because we are trying to figure out why, you know, what was the difference here? You know, why were kids in the severely obese category eating, what was it, about 40 calories more at breakfast and at lunch about 100 calories more. And, and so one of the things we can look at is, okay, did they select more items to start with or were they eating more of their standardized portions? Were the underweight or healthy weight children eating maybe half of each of their, serve, each of their items and the severely obese eating the full serving or maybe the severely obese were getting an extra serving, a trade from somebody else. So that is something that we want to look at to try to figure it out. It could also be the specific items that they were selecting. For example, in offer versus serve for school breakfast, you have to pick two of the meal components. I believe that's right. And for school lunch, you have to pick three of them. So depending on what is picked, that could have some implications on the caloric content that's on the tray. Okay, so those are some things that we want to explore more and see if we can better understand what's going on here. Another possible thing could be um, some of the a la carte things. Maybe they were buying ice cream in addition, or maybe um, flavored milks. Maybe, you know, white milk versus a chocolate milk that would have more calories in it. But you've raised a very good point, and that is something that, that we want to look at and try to figure that out. I think another point which uh, I was concerned about, at least when I was working with children, was that uh, it's the same issue applies where you know, we, eat, we tend to eat whatever we're given. So I, I think maybe identifying what items they purposely select that have implications for options that are available. Um, so the food service can modify certain items mm -hmm. that are available to the service, even if they choose door, you know, door one. We have, before I moved to USC, I collected data in Augusta, Georgia, and I worked at Medical College of Georgia. So that was in a different school district, and they had not implemented offer versus serve. And so we actually have another R21 that we've gotten funded to look at similar research questions from data collected in those schools. Um, again, the data were not collected to address those research questions. They were collected to address how well do children report what they have eaten. Um, but, and we do not have daily participation from that school district. But the difference is that school district had not implemented offer versus serve, so every child, they did get to pick between an entree choice each day, but otherwise everything was put on their tray. And they got to pick the flavor of their milk. Um, and interestingly enough, we are, some, are, some of our preliminary analyses there and one other small study with only 40 children, we found similar things in, with the result that higher BMI children were observed eating more calories than lower BMI children. So, and, and we want to look at that as well and see if we can explain, was it trades? Were they eating more of their, of their portions? Because there they had more similar items, you know, on their tray, although they could have 
picked a different flavor of milk, and they could have picked a different entree, like that. Yes? We had 17 schools in the first school year, 17 in the second, and eight in the third school year. So what are your thoughts about why there was increased energy intake in the classroom setting as opposed to the cafeteria setting? Good question. And that's something we want to look at more closely too. What we are thinking it might be, one thing we have found is some of the items, right, Alyssa, that were served breakfast in the classroom were higher in caloric content. Um, sausage biscuits. Yeah. In the cafeteria, they had a choice at breakfast between cold cereal or a hot option. And in the, um, for ease of transportation, you know, they only had an option of a juice or there's a couple milks that they're only allowed to take one beverage versus the cafeteria, they could take a milk and a juice. And then in the um, classroom, you know, sausage biscuits or chicken biscuits are very easy to transport or in little containers. So rarely ever did they <coughs> actually have cold cereal, cereal as an option in the classroom. So they, they didn't really have an option and it tended to be, I mean, the kids would comment about sausage biscuit again because they got it all the time. There wasn't as much variation in it with options. Mm -hmm. So the specific items, we're also thinking that there could, there was more cajoling to eat in the classroom because the teacher, you know, had her class and she was like, Ed, are you going to drink your juice? Ed, you still have juice, ju juice there. Ed, are you going to drink your juice? Whereas in the cafeteria, it's hundreds of children and there's not near as much individual attention of, you know, hey, you still got food left. Are you going to eat it? Are you going to eat it? And we're also wondering if maybe in the classroom, if there were multiple servings eaten, that some children, they sent, if, if there were 25 children in the class, they would send 25 sausage biscuits, but not every child wanted to eat. So I could have essentially eaten three sausage biscuits if I wanted to. So the reason I asked about schools is, did you include schools in the analysis? I mean, this is a multi-level situation where you have schools and then children. We had breakfast location in the analysis and so that was essentially a marker for for school we could include school in there but we had school year in there and we had breakfast location so when we put school in it was it was crossed with the breakfast location so what other things were different about schools that offered breakfast in those classrooms in in what way do you mean numbers of children or what was there greater participation in the programs was there a higher level It was up to each principal if they wanted to have breakfast in the classroom. And all of the schools in Richland One have to have school breakfast. That is mandated. Um, participation generally was higher when they had breakfast in the classroom. Not sure if I'm answering your question. Ed's going, and I was wondering as well, is just, as you stated so nicely, breakfast in the classroom is a marker for the school itself and not necessarily. And you've done some analyses that suggest there's something about breakfast that might be helping us understand obesity, but there might be something about the communities or something about the school population itself that's, that would also explain. 
explain that difference. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this in the context, just to add to that, in the context of <coughs> what else, what other work has been done related to this. Uh, Wendy Wolf did a study, I think probably the first study in the United States looking at obesity in, in children in the schools in New York State, where she showed that participation in breakfast and participation in lunch was associated with BMI in two different directions. And anyway, the, the point was that those variables, even though they were measured at the individual level, were really markers for schools. So even though it wasn't about location, schools differed so much in whether they participated or not that it was a marker for the school, and so it affects how you think about it. So from an analytic point of view, I guess I'm thinking ahead relative to publishing it, it's a two-level situation. You've got to model schools okay. and show that the location variable explains a lot of the school-to-school -school variability. I think that's necessary to help readers understand that that really is a school-level variable. The other thing I was going to throw in, just as an aside, is that all the analyses I've ever done, even within a grade, age is going to be an important determinant of BMI, and so controlling for that seems important how much you find putting their actual grade and actual age in there. Um, if we had been able to do BMI percentile, that of course would have accounted for their, th for their actual age with it. We did have BMI percentile in the BMI category. Well, the way people would usually do it is express BMI as a Z-score, which is age and sex adjusted, and then those Z-scores automatically take care of the age. I think when, when James tried to do Z-scores for it, it did not solve the distributional problem with BMI, with BMI percentile, which is why we ended up going with BMI. Okay. the distributional problem? I was curious about that. <coughs> I've never had a, you know, I've never seen a paper that sort of got to the point of saying we could not use this variable because it's very common um, and sort of had mm -hmm. to revert to another one. The distribution was very stacked to the far right side, the heavier children. We had a lot, a lot right. stacked but up what there. That, what, why did that, I mean, could we not go to some non-parametric <coughs> or you know, some oh, other statistical method? Did it sort of violate some assumptions of your models that you just said those models? That was, yeah, that was what James was, was doing and when he tried the different types of transformations they were not working, but when he just analyzed BMI. Are you saying that BMI was negatively skewed? In other words, the, the long BMI tail percentile. Was the left? BMI percentile. BMI percentile was skewed, so we ended up using BMI in our analyses and BMI category, which used so BMI percentile. Nobody working with anthropometry data would use BMI percentile in analysis like this and expect it to have a distribution. They would do the Z scores, and then we would expect there'd be a long tail to the right, it'd be positively skewed, and then sometimes you have a lot of transformation, but there's no, I know I agree with Wendy, there's no reason why you can't use BMI continuously or express it in Z-scores so that you can interpret it that way. Mm. James was supposed to be here today so that he could address <laughs> that, I'm might sorry. Be to run by him, because I would think <coughs> in the review that might come up. Okay, um, that's a good point. It's a good point, I appreciate that, because we are hoping to, to submit this. Um, because it's, it, it's an important topic, and we've got some strengths here. We obviously have some weaknesses, but we have some strengths in looking at it in a way that it hasn't been looked at previously. And school meals can often take a big, can often get a lot of criticism um, and a lot of finger pointing that, oh, they're, you know, they're the cause. 
And you know, here we're finding it's not the fact that they're participating in school meals. Um, you know, it's we're finding differences in observed energy intake at both breakfast and lunch. Um, and breakfast location, there's there was something with breakfast location, but we're finding more intake at lunch as well, you know, by BMI and BMI category. A couple more questions. So, just, I, I think you've said this already. So basically, the um, location in, in classroom versus cafeteria was not available in all schools. There were schools that only did breakfast in the cafeteria, is that right? Right, the school had either <coughs> breakfast in the classroom or in the cafeteria. That, no that was the school decision. Both. No schools did both. Okay, it was either classroom okay, or cafeteria. Okay. Okay, um, and then, um, okay, then that answers my question, second question, which was going to be if kids would actually have the choice as to uh -huh. where they locate their For the breakfast. But I think what is really nice about your study is that it's probably one of the fewer ones that shows that children who had a higher BMI were eating more. Right. Because <laughs> it's hard to show, it's very hard to show, especially right. in adults. But in kids, right. and, and you know, yours is now observed, um, which is a difference. Right, but my, my, the reason I brought up about the multi-level aspect of this, in the, in the work that we did in New York, um, and this is also in some work we've done in CLSK, that there's substantial variability from school to school in BMI. So location, you know, the community, whatever it is that school represents, matters. Yes. And my guess is that what you're seeing is that in some schools, kids have higher BMIs, and in some schools, kids eat more. Now, whether those are linked in any way, in any kind of direct sense, is an open question. It could be lots of other things. So at least Describing it um, fully in this sense at least helps us think about it and, and realize that it's, it's not that, my guess is that it's not that children who eat more are the same, are the children who have higher BMIs. It's children in places where children tend to eat more are the same places where children have a higher BMI. It's a different implication. Okay. And Alyssa and Caroline, do y'all remember, because we've got another analysis that we're looking at BMI, and did we put school in those analyses? Were we finding much difference in BMI across the schools? I'm trying to remember and I'm having trouble. Yeah, because I'm thinking there was not that much difference, but you've raised a real good point and I want to go back and include school and include age in the model. Yes. Minor point. 
bigger point, but um, still some, I think some of the variations that we need may not, we may not know that could also affect mm -hmm. how much they use at a given time. So less time. We could look at that because we've actually recorded when we did observations in both places the length of the entire meal. Now it's not how long you took to eat breakfast, but it's how long breakfast was available to see. Um, but I do recall in, in Augusta, in the elementary schools there, where all of the schools had breakfast in the cafeteria. And it was always interesting to me because the buses would come and drop the children off at the cafeteria door, and half of them would still just march straight through and go to the other side and sit down. It was like, I do not want breakfast now. And they, so they sat there through the entire breakfast but did not eat. And so, you know, I, one thing I've been wondering for a long time is why don't we have breakfast in schools as part of the regular school day? Schedule it as part of the day, just like they do lunch. It's a different logistical issue, and they would have to make some changes in their food production because often they are, are already preparing, getting ready for breakfast, sorry, for lunch, and in a matter of seating everyone like that. But they work lunch in there, and it just seems to me like, you know, after you've seen, and this was not one school year, but five school years, <laughs> seven school years, you know, just seeing that, you know, year after year, it was like, you know, the children, half of them were still, they were sleepwalking. It was so early in the morning, um, and they were, you know, they, they just weren't ready to eat breakfast. But if it could be scheduled later as, as part of the day, might work better and I think some schools are actually going to that didn't we see s some of that in a newspaper article or or something or maybe I heard about it at the okay yeah starting to schedule it as as part of the school day um, so we've got some work to do on it I appreciate appreciate your your input um, it's very helpful and um, you know this was this was an opportunity to do some secondary analyses um, and actually weight and height had not been included in the original study. We went back and added that. So again, it was not ideal, but... It did sound, you know, from other work that's been done, um, the school level variable besides the location that might be the most important would be the socioeconomic status of the school, you know, the, something about the wealth of the school, the wealth of the community in the school, and I, I bet you can get information on expenditures per pupil or something or other that differentiates the schools and I bet that would explain some of the variation among the schools. Okay. In BMI. That's a good point and we do have a um, fee-for-service contract with Office of Research and Statistics so we can get um, child's participation or they can analyze for the child's um, eligibility for free meals, reduced price meals, or full price meals. So it's not, um, you know, it's just those three categories for SES. We did actually look at that for BMI, uh, not looking at the participation, but BMI. But we don't have much variability. So many of these children were getting, were eligible for free school meals. But what I was talking about was the variability at the school level, not the child. Right, and here that is going to be a problem with our, um, the design of the study. We, we for the dietary reporting validation study, we needed to observe the children eating breakfast and lunch so we could compare that to what they told us they had eaten. That was our method of validation. So we, I, we picked schools from the school district that had high participation in school breakfast and school lunch. 
and invariably then, and, and in Richland One, you know, many of them already are, have high eligibility for free meals. So in other words, we had, um, the schools were, were pretty similar. They're not all exactly the same, and, and, and I've heard you, and I do want to add, you know, I see the need to add school and age and look at um, Z-scores. Weber, but that was only the first school year. Yeah. That's way out there. Yeah. I've been driving out there a lot myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, most of them were in the Yeah. So good, qu good questions. Was was there another? I was just saying, since they're taking into account like the emotional side of eating, you know, you're talking about these kids don't feel like they're offered a lot of food or not, but whether they're offered or not, how kids are taught to eat, whether they're taught to eat everything that's on their plate, it might affect whether or not they choose some of the extra options or, you know, if they go home and don't know whether or not they're going to eat that night, you know, right. how they think, how they've been taught to eat might affect how much calorie intake they take at school and they might not see how much they eat. Right. You know. And if they're a charter member of the Clean Your Plate Club. <laughs> yeah. We, we, unfortunately, we did not look at that. That, that's a good point. I was just going to say that you're being able to observe them. It'd be interesting to see the social influence of how much they eat, because there's a lot of research that says if you basically hang out with people that eat a lot, you eat a lot. It'd be interesting to see what they're doing. Uh, that would be interesting. I'm not sure that we could get at that, because we, we were observing anywhere from one to three children at a meal. Um, and sometimes they were seated right next to each other, but other times they were not. They were all typically at the same table or in the same classroom, you know, for breakfast in the classroom. Um, but that, that's, that's an interesting point. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you.